This is a Venry ECC Small Talk podcast, episode number 20, a journal papers episode. Welcome to this episode of the Veterinary ECC Small Talk podcast, where it's all about small animal emergency and critical care. Primary survey, secondary survey, analgesia, fluids, shock, trauma. We've got it covered. And now, here's your host, never afraid to bring the jibber jabber, it's Shailen Jassani. Hello and welcome to the Veterinary ECC Small Talk podcast with me, Shailen Jassani. As always, I appreciate you taking the time to listen to the podcast wherever you might be. I know that people listen in the car on the way to work, out walking a dog, exercising, doing chores around the house, that sort of thing. Also, a little belatedly, I hope that everyone in the USA had a great 4th of July weekend. So in today's episode, I'm going to present some papers that have been published in the Journal of the American Veterinary Medical Association, or JAVMA, in the first half of 2015, and also a letter to the editor from Veterinary Anesthesia and Analgesia. Can you believe that we're already more than halfway through this year? It's uh, crazy. So I had a look through issues of JAVMA from the first half of 2015, and chose just a couple of papers that I felt were of particular interest to people with an ECC bias. I'm going to present some highlights from each paper, and I will of course include the references in the show notes. As always, if anyone wants a copy of any of the papers mentioned, then do get in touch. Contact information is always at the end of the episode. So the first paper is entitled Incidents of and Risk Factors for post-operative regurgitation and vomiting in dogs, 244 cases, 2000 to 2012. And this is from February, and the authors are John A. Davies, Bowl A. Franson, Anastasia M. Davis, et al. So post-operative regurgitation and vomiting, or PORV, is obviously not a problem that only affects ECC patients, but it certainly is something that you might encounter doing ECC work. And I know that personally I have seen a number of dogs with post-operative aspiration pneumonia, for example. So why do we care? Well, as the authors point out, it negatively affects the comfort level of veterinary patients and can lead to multiple adverse outcomes, including aspiration pneumonia, various esophageal problems, and indeed increased tension on suture lines. The resultant post-operative morbidity can result in prolonged hospitalization and also dramatically increase treatment costs. So the authors say that the similar syndrome in human patients affects between 20 and 30% of patients, but that the incidence of PORV and complications in dogs is not known. However, they say that in their clinical experience and as reported by others, it appears to have increased in recent years and they go on to make some suggestions as to why this might be. And that is certainly something that I have heard said before that maybe the incidence of post-operative regurgitation and vomiting has increased in recent years. 
So for those of you listening that have been working in clinical practice for a while now, do you also think that this has become a more commonly encountered problem? As always, I'd love to know about your clinical experiences. So the authors say that there are numerous investigations of the similar syndrome in people, but that this is not mirrored in the veterinary literature. And to their knowledge, no studies have been conducted to evaluate the overall incidence of PORV in dogs or have actually tried to identify risk factors for PORV. So the purpose of their study was to determine the incidence of PORV in dogs at their institution, both recently and also at a period 12 years earlier. So their primary hypothesis was that the incidence of PORV would be greater in 2012 than it was in 2000. And their secondary hypothesis was that this increase would be associated with longer anesthesia and surgery times because of a larger number of more complicated procedures. So there was a retrospective study population of dogs that had undergone non-elective neurological, orthopedic or soft tissue surgical procedures. And they compared cases from two three-month periods. So January the 1st to March the 31st in 2000, and then January the 1st to March the 31st in 2012. And the study was performed at the Veterinary Teaching Hospital of Washington State University. When multiple surgeries were performed on the same dog during the study period, then only the first surgical procedure was included in the study. And the authors obviously described their data collection and the statistical analysis in detail in the same way as you would expect for any paper published in a journal like this. But I'm not going to get into all of that detail here for the podcast. So in total, they had 111 dogs in the 2000 group and 133 dogs in the 2012 group. And actually, their sample size was based on a power calculation which they describe in the paper. And this is something which is not that common in veterinary literature. So good on them for trying. The overall incidence of PORV was 12.3%, with 5.7% vomiting and 5.7% regurgitating, and then 0.8% having both vomiting and regurgitation. The authors were interested in looking at a variety of risk factors and they say that given that there was not a significant difference in the incidence of PORV or risk factor distribution between their two cohorts, then their risk factor analysis was conducted on pool data. So in other words, they analysed the 2000 and the 2012 cohorts as one group for the purposes of risk factor analysis. So the authors go on to say that Because the incidence of PORV was not significantly different between the two years, we rejected our primary hypothesis. And remember that their primary hypothesis was that the incidence of PORV would be greater in 2012 than it was in 2000. But they do say that their data shows that compared with the 2000 cohort, there was a significant increase in the number of dogs that regurgitated in 2012 Correspondingly, there was a marked decrease in the number of dogs that vomited. And the incidence of post-operative regurgitation in this study, which was 6.6%, 
contrast with that previously reported of 1% to 2%. The authors say that there were differences between the two cohorts with respect to weight, prior corticosteroid administration, pre-medications, anesthetic induction agents, anesthetic maintenance agents, use of nitrous oxide, intraoperative and postoperative opioid usage, use of neuromuscular blocking agents, and the number of neurological surgeries performed. So quite a lot of differences between the two cohorts, and one or more of these factors may have been responsible for the apparent increase in regurgitation, but decrease in vomiting. But remember that you can't really tell that, right? This is just about a potential association, but we certainly can't prove it, and we certainly can't prove that there was any causation there. One thing that did perk my interest was that they say that dogs that underwent emergency procedures had a significantly higher incidence of PORV. So the odds ratio was 4.08 and the 95% confidence interval was 1.29 to 12.9, which is quite a wide, well, it is a wide confidence interval. The authors speculate that this observed increase in the risk of PORV with emergency procedures may be due to the high number of gastrointestinal surgeries performed on an emergency basis in dogs. Of the 15 dogs having emergency surgery in the present study, six underwent GI surgery. So this is potentially something for us as ECC people to take note of. It may be that emergency procedures carry a greater risk of PORV than other non-elective procedures. But bear in mind that there were only 15 dogs in this study that had emergency surgery, which is really not very many to be drawing conclusions from. The other thing that the authors comment on is that in their study, dogs with PORV had higher ASA scores than those that didn't, and that an ASA score of 4 was significant in their model compared with dogs in the reference category, which they said was ASA score of 2. So just to remind you about the American Society of Anesthesiologists scoring system, you will find slightly different uh, variations on what the different scores are. But basically a score of two means that there is slight risk. So there's uh, maybe minor disease present, an animal with slight to mild systemic disturbance, but an animal that is able to compensate. And then neonates, geriatric animals and obese animals can also be put in the score 2 category. An ASA score of 4, on the other hand, means a patient that has severe systemic disease, which is a constant threat to life. So you're talking here about high risk, significantly compromised by disease, animals with pre-existing systemic disease, or disturbances of a severe nature. So things like shock, severe dehydration, uremia, endotoxemia, severe pyrexia, uncompensated heart disease, and so on. But the authors do say that given the subjectivity of the ASA scoring system and low number of dogs with an ASA score of 4, further analysis of this variable was limited and the subjective nature of assigning ASA scores makes it difficult to use this measure to accurately predict the likelihood of PORV in individual patients. We suggest that as ASA score increases, the risk of, for PORV may increase, but further studies needed to determine whether this is the case in veterinary patients. 
Now, remember that the author's secondary hypothesis was that anesthesia and surgery times would be longer in the 2012 cohort. But actually, based on their study, they also rejected that as the times were actually shorter. So the authors did some multivariate logistical regression to try and come up with a model that would allow dogs at increased risk of PORV to be predicted beforehand. But the model that they created did not have adequate sensitivity and specificity for it to actually be used clinically. And then, as always, the authors discuss some limitations of their study, which are largely centered around the fact that it's a retrospective study. And they also make the point that the study did not attempt to elucidate the effects of prophylactic interventions, in particular gastrointestinal protective treatment. So basically, for me, I think the main thing that I take from this study is their reported incidence of PORV um, across the groups and comparisons to previous literature. But I don't think we really should be over-egging the differences between the two groups, so the 2000 and the 2012 group, in terms of the incidence of regurgitation versus vomiting. I think all we can really take is their reported incidence overall and compare that to previous literature and probably just leave it at that. And I think that the point that the authors make, which is, we hope that our findings will be useful in the design of future prospective randomized case control studies, evaluating the efficacy of various therapeutic measures, is a salient point. So we need good studies looking at the incidence of PORV prospectively, rather than retrospectively. And then maybe we can look at incorporating the effects or lack of effects of preventative measures in a randomized study fashion. And then I guess the other two things that we can take, but again, it's really not um, substantiated from this paper. It's just there may be a signal there and we're going to have to actually you know, explore that further in, in future prospective studies, is that it may be that animals or dogs that are undergoing emergency surgery or those with an ASA score of four may be at increased risk. But as I say, from an evidence-based point of view, this is certainly not something that has been substantiated by this paper. Okay, so that's that paper about post-operative regurgitation and vomiting, which as I say, I've certainly seen cases of, and I'm sure that you will have as well, and I've certainly seen ones where they have been really quite sick as a result of it. Other situations where we probably don't even know that they have regurgitated, for example, because it's got no clinical consequences to the patient. So I thought it was worthwhile just talking about that paper. Let's move on to the second paper, and this paper is completely different. So this one is entitled Association of Blood Lactate Concentration with Physical Perfusion Variables, Blood Pressure and Outcome for Cats Treated at an Emergency Service. And this is actually from July 2015, so hot off the press. And the authors here are Erica Reinecki, Colleen Rees, and Ken Drobatz. And Ken Drobatz, I imagine, is one of the most, if not the most, published veterinarians in the entire world. Um, I encourage you to go and do a PubMed, Google Scholar, Cab Abstracts, or any other database you choose search on Ken Drobats and see just how many papers come up it's spectacular he's very much uh, one of the forefathers of veterinary ECC 
So when I read the title of this paper, some of the thoughts that came to mind were firstly that we know that the vast majority of cats that we see with perfusion abnormalities are actually moderately to severely affected. As I've said in a previous episode, the presentation of a cat with only mild early compensatory hypoperfusion is relatively rare and is also not especially challenging to identify the moderate to severe hypoperfusion cases that I'm saying we see much more often. I have personally seen a lot of lactate values in hypoperfused cats. So in other words, I have my own anecdotal experience. And I was interested to see what this paper said in that regard. I always say that even with dogs, with um, perfusion assessment should start with physical examination and then be complemented by blood pressure and lactate if you have them. And that physical examination remains to a large part what I use to guide my treatment. And I think if anything, this applies even more to cats. The other thought I had was that whenever I see a veterinary paper talking about whether there is an association between a parameter such as lactate and outcome, I am instantly sceptical because we know what level of good quality evidence is needed before we could start using parameters to predict outcome. And I think it's essential that authors of studies provide a good critique of their findings so as to not mislead readers who may be less able or willing to actually analyse the study in detail. So those were just some of the things that came to mind when I saw the title of the paper. Now let's see what they said in the paper itself. So the authors start by reminding us of the whole lactate as a marker of hypoperfusion story, and I'm not going to repeat that here. They rightly say in patients seen on an emergency basis that have altered physical examination, perfusion variables and hypotension, hyperlactatemia is most commonly secondary to hypoperfusion. But they do also point out that there are other conditions associated with high circulating lactate concentration, such as liver failure, neoplasia, seizures and sepsis. The authors say that a literature search revealed no veterinary clinical studies evaluating the relationships between blood lactate concentration and perfusion variables assessed by physical examination or systolic arterial blood pressure in cats. And so the goal of the, the, goal of the study here was to assess potential associations of lactate concentration with physically assessed perfusion variables, systolic arterial blood pressure, and outcome in ill cats that were evaluated at an emergency service. And their primary hypothesis was that blood lactate concentration would be higher in cats with abnormalities in tissue perfusion variables and with hypotension compared with cats that had values within the expected ranges. And then their secondary hypothesis was that hyperlactatemia would be associated with a worse outcome compared with cats without this finding. So this was a prospective observational study that was carried out in the emergency room at the University of Pennsylvania between February 2011 and December 2013. Cats had their physical examination perfusion assessment, their Doppler systolic arterial blood pressure and venous lactate measured before any interventions were performed. 
the lactate uh, blood sample for the lactate was typically taken at the time of IV catheter placement, but they did mention that in some cases the cat had separate venipuncture for this sampling. The authors then retrospectively classified the cats in the study as having either no shock, mild to moderate shock or severe shock on the basis of their physical perfusion assessment and blood pressure. And of course, the authors go into a lot more detail about the materials and methods that I'm not going to get into here. So 111 cats were enrolled in the study and they had a variety of underlying diseases. I'm not actually going to tell you more about all the results from this study, though. As I mentioned, if you like, uh, pay, you'd like a copy of the paper and you can't get hold of it yourself, then just get in touch and I'll be very happy to send you a copy. What I did want to do is to actually just relay the author's own conclusions in the paper because I think they are very salient and I think there are points that can never be repeated too many times. So the authors write as follows, and I'm just going to read this bit. It says, Results of the present study suggested that hyperlactatemia can be present in cats with and cats without abnormalities in physical perfusion variables and hypotension. Ultimately, no single variable can provide an accurate and consistent estimate of the adequacy of global tissue perfusion. Blood lactate concentration should always be evaluated in the clinical context of the patient. In animals with physical perfusion abnormalities and hypotension, therapeutic interventions should be aimed at restoring global tissue perfusion regardless of the blood lactate concentration. Conversely, in a hyperlactatemic patient, if there is no other clinical evidence of hypoperfusion, other reasons for the blood lactate concentration elevation should be investigated. As I say, I think those are very salient points that should continue to be reiterated, especially for people that are not very familiar and just coming to understand the role that lactate has in our practice. Basically, the point is that lactate should not be used in isolation or instead of physical examination, but that it should be used as an additional complementary or supplementary parameter. And that's very much, as I say, how I see blood pressure as well. Okay, and before I go, I just wanted to uh, relay some information from a letter to the editor that was published in Veterinary Anesthesia and Analgesia in March of this year. It relates to a potential complication of esophagostomy tube placement, which I know is something that has increased in popularity in recent times. So this is entitled, All in a Tangle, a Mishap with an Esophagostomy Tube in an Intubated Cat. And the authors are Sarah Boveri and Jacqueline Brearley. So the authors say, we would like to report a case of entrapment of the pilot tube of an endotracheal tube within an esophagostomy tube loop. So remember that the pilot tube is that thin tube that connects the pilot balloon to the cuff of a cuffed endotracheal tube. And the pilot balloon is what you connect your syringe to when you inflate and deflate the cuff. And if that makes no sense, I'm going to include a picture in the show notes. So a one-year-old multiple pelvic fractures cat um, following road traffic accident was anaesthetized for fracture repair and esophagostomy tube placement 
and all of that stuff was done successfully. But when it came to extubating the cat, the endotracheal tube could not be removed. And so the authors say that the oral cavity was examined using a laryngoscope. The pilot balloon of the ET tube could be seen retreating into the esophagus when any attempt at extubation was made. It was not possible to free the pilot, the pilot balloon without pushing the endotracheal tube deeper through the larynx. Finally, we considered that the endotracheal tube pilot tube could have been entrapped in a loop of the esophagostomy tube during the placement of the latter. Normally, during placement of an esophagostomy tube, the tube is withdrawn into the mouth from its initial insertion site in the cervical esophageal reason and then redirected cordially into the esophagus. And we think this is where the entrapment could have occurred. And so what they did basically was they cut the pilot tube and the endotracheal tube and the pilot balloon were all pulled out from the cat's mouth separately. And there was no signs of oxygen desaturation during the whole of that time. And the cat went on to recover fine. But the main learning point is that although the incidence of the pilot tube of an endotracheal tube getting entrapped in the esophageal feeding tube during placement is low, it should always be considered as, as a potential complication of the procedure. And obviously you have to be careful during positioning of the feeding tube, especially in small patients. And the authors argue that the size of the patient can be considered a relevant risk factor for this complication, as it has been reported mainly in cats. And then the authors go on to say that, well, you could avoid this potential complication. So if we're saying the esophagostomy tube is getting entrapped with the pilot tube because it's a cuffed endotracheal tube, well, you could avoid the complication by just using an uncuffed tube. But they argue that the benefits of using a cuffed tube, especially when you're performing an esophageal procedure, where there's going to potentially be the increased risk for regurgitation, that the benefits outweigh the risk that this scenario of the pilot tube entrapment complication provides. Um, and I think they're probably right in that regard as well. So as I say, I just wanted to mention this report um, to you for you to bear it in mind. And indeed, if anyone has actually encountered this complication, if it's happened to one of your cases before, then as I always say, do get in touch and let me know. Okay, so that brings me to the end of this episode. As always, you can download a transcript of this episode at the website. So the link this time is veteccsmalltalk.com forward slash episode forward slash 20. So that's veteccsmalltalk.com forward slash episode forward slash 20. With respect to show notes for this episode, what I've done is to just include the abstracts for the two main papers in the episode. Um, and as I say, if you would like a copy of those papers or indeed of the letter to editor case report, then please do get in touch with me. You can use the contact form on the website. Uh, you can email me at shailenjasani at gmail.com. You can hit me up on Twitter at vetemcc or get in touch via Facebook at the Veterinary ECC Small Talk page. Uh, before I go, I also wanted to remind you that about a couple of weeks ago, I set up the Veterinary ECC Small Talk private Facebook group, which I want to sit alongside the open public page. Facebook groups are actually better for having discussions and also by making the group private, then hopefully people will feel more comfortable about sharing clinical and other sensitive information. 
So if you're not already a member of the group, then please go to the following link, which is bit.ly vecc smalltalkfb. So that's bit.ly forward slash vetecc smalltalkfb. And just request to join and I will let you in. Um, and I'll also include the link to the Facebook group in the show notes as well. And then lastly, my usual request to uh, help support the podcast by rating and reviewing it in iTunes. Also by sharing about the podcast on your social media channels and by at mentioning your friends and colleagues who you think would also benefit from the podcast. I must admit I was really sad this time because I had no reviews to read out, which was just horrible. Um, The next episode will be in two weeks' time. And until then, do take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Veterinary ECC Small Talk Podcast. Please share your thoughts and comments on www.veteccsmalltalk.com or hit us up on social media. Until next time, keep up the small talk and the jibber-jabber.